In this episode, we went out there with Mac Brown from Bryson City, North Carolina. Mac's granddad taught him to fly fish as a small boy in the Ozarks, having him practice in the yard before he would take him to the river. Thus was born in Mac a fascination and love of not just fly fishing, but loops and casting. After fishing the White River system in college, Mac moved to North Carolina in 1986 and has been guiding there ever since. Mac is a fly fishing and casting instructor and is the author of the book Casting Angles. We discuss how the 80-20 principle applies to fly fishing's core practices, the basics of loop control, North Carolina, and the pitfalls of putting the goal before the process. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Mac. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you here. I'm excited to talk to you. I've been out to North Carolina a few times fishing, maybe two or three times. And every time we go, Bryson City is kind of the hub. That's where we go. I usually yeah. go with my, my aunt and uncle are in Charlotte, so we get a cabin out there. And so I love talking to them. And I'm definitely going to let them know that this that we have this episode so they can get some info for when they're up there as well. No, that'd be great. It, it's kind of funny too, Jason, because uh, Bryson's one of the smaller towns, as you know, less than a thousand people population in the city limit, and it's the most searched in the state. So it's like there's a lot of bigger, you know, bigger cities in Western Carolina, but we have, if you look at Google Analytics, it's searched like fivefold more than any other town. Well, it's just geographically right there. I mean, that's exactly what you're describing, exactly what I did, because I was kind of in charge of planning the family reunion the first year, and my uncle was getting into fly fishing. I had been fishing for a while, uh, well, for a long while, but you know, I, I just knew there was trout streams out there, and so I was just looking on the map, and that's where they all kind of were around. I mean, I know Asheville is kind of the big, big city, like you're talking about bigger city out west, but... It's right. just not quite where it needs to be, you know, so there's plenty that's of cabins right. out there too. Oh, there's a lot of cabins, rental cabins. And um, that's what brought me here in um, 86 was the fact that the county, Swain County, most of the national parks in Swain County, but 90% of the, the land is owned by the federal government, either Nantahala National Forest or the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So for me, after college, I walked the AT to Maine. And that's what brought me here. So walking through this county, I realized this is an outdoor Mecca, you know? Yeah. And when did you move out there? 86. 86, right out of school. And were you fishing like in school and after school and fly fishing the whole time professionally? Or did you kind of work yeah. your way into it? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I was born in the Ozarks. So, so my granddaddy and my mom and everybody's from down in the Ozarks. And so, yeah, as a young kid, we spent a lot of time on the uh, Current River, Merrimack Springs, down on the White River with my grandfather back in the 60s. And um, we moved to East Tennessee in 1968 when I was five years old. And uh, so I grew up in Greenville, Tennessee, over by the South Holston, the Watauga, 
uh, Paint Creek is what I fished a lot growing up as a kid in Horse Creek in Upper East Tennessee. And uh, so, yeah, when I was back at, in college in Missouri, I fished a lot, still back down on the white, down on the current. But yeah, I didn't really know. I didn't really have a plan yet. Were you fly fishing back then too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My granddaddy started me, started me when I was. Oh, really? Down. Yeah, in the Ozarks. What were some of the things that you took away from fly fishing from your grandfather? Um, I guess respect of a having appreciation of uh watching somebody that that's a lot older that's really good at something, you know? Like I can remember being fascinated just by watching the line move back and forth when he'd fish dry flies like down on the current. Cause uh you know it's falling at the same rate. And I ask these questions a lot as a kid. It's falling at the rate of gravity, but if you take a fly line and drop it at waist height, it hits the ground pretty quick, doesn't it? So then how is it a line can go out 50, 60 feet of carry and throw a dry fly, yet it didn't crash and burn? So then I realized there's some magic in this loop. So I was pretty fascinated, to be honest, as a young kid by looking at loop loops and how they propagate, you know? Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, because... I mean, now you've written the book Casting Angles and you're teaching casting instruction and stuff like that. So I think that's cool that it it started for you at an early age in your mind with your grandfather out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really did. That's kind of where my earliest memories are, are watching, you know, watching him. Was he giving you lessons? Was he giving you instruction out there? Was he making <laughs> sure you're doing it the right way or was he just pretty letting much, you go? Yeah, no, he was pretty strict. Like it, it really was a lot like a, you know, when a river runs through it, when it shows the little kids and there's a metronome and it. And <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm imagining. Yeah. Well, no, that's what it was with him. Like we didn't get to go until in the yard, we proved ourselves worthy of, of making a halfway decent delivery as a young kid. So, so he'd sit out there, you know, and sit in the shade. I can remember in the summers, the Ozarks would have hot summers back in the sixties. And uh, I can remember out there flailing away until I'd finally get it something acceptable, you know? <laughs> young kid, Acceptable. Holding, holding it two-handed like a spay rod at five-year-old kid you know oh i know yeah i'm dealing with that with my son and we're going to talk about this a little bit later but uh maybe getting him set up with some uh better techniques i don't know that i'm the right person to teach him that and that's one of the reasons i'm excited to talk to you is maybe pick up some techniques and and learn uh some about the casting but i thought we would start with gratitude I notice when I'm looking through your social media feed that you have a lot of Sunday outings and a lot of uh, experiences with family and friends and just like guests that are special to you. But the concept of gratefulness or thankfulness comes up a lot. And I'm wondering where does that come from? And has that always been like that or has it evolved? Because I think for me, sometimes it's, it's, you know, I, I can forget some of the things that make fly fishing special that I'm grateful for just to be able to wade through the river, you know, right? and be out on a day or have the free time to be with my friends and family and some of those things. And I just get wrapped up in like, I want to catch fish. I got to get out there early. I, you know, I get caught up in like the tactics and logistics of it. And it right. seems like that's something that you're able to, um, even though you are a tactician, very much technical casting expert you're able to kind of maintain that level of gratefulness. And I wonder if you could speak to that and what your thoughts are. Sure. Well, I, I, I think a lot of it probably comes from my, my parents and my, my grandparents of uh, just the appreciation of, uh, of gratitude for the people that share stuff, you know, with you over the years. And there's, there's so many, 
when I think back as being, you know, a kid, not just in casting, but in fly tying and all kinds of different avenues. Of course, fly tying, to think about that for a second, of course, that's a lot tougher back in the 60s and 70s because there's not YouTube. There's not all this stuff that kids can watch. So fly tying is definitely, I think, a great asset of this new, you know, generation with YouTube and all that. Because back then I can remember going to a lot of the conclaves that the FFI would put on and they'd bring in hundreds of, you know, world famous tires. And I'd go in there like a kid in a candy store with a notebook, college rule notebook and fill it up in a whole day. And you're sitting right there watching Dave Whitlock tie bass bugs and Jim Stewart spin deer hair and stack deer hair. Jim Stewart was one of the top deer hair stackers in the world at the time. And so you're sitting there and they're, they're walking you through it step by step. And I mean, to get that kind of education, I mean, I look back at that notebook even still. There's still all these little tidbits of nuggets that are phenomenal information, you know, which I never would have had, you know, as a kid without without attending those things. So there's just there's too many people to to really thank that that loved the sport and they gave back and they shared what they knew, you know. Yeah, I had a notebook when I was in the fighter squadron that I remember when I was an instructor looking back on and reading all these things from all these previous instructors that I'd, I'd sat in on briefed and copied things and copied all their tactics and everything. And then it's just so cool to go back and look at some of those older things and say, Oh yeah, I remember where that came from and how that idea kind of morphed and formed kind of the tactics that I use today. And, uh, it's just kind of a cool nostalgia thing. I think that's something that I've kind of gone back and forth on this. I, I don't wonder what your opinion is, but I think it's kind of a cool thing for me. I've, gone back and forth with having a notebook that I use for fishing, for fly fishing, where maybe it's not representative of what I've learned from other people necessarily, like it was flying airplanes, but more when I go fishing, what I, what I learned that day, you know, conditions, you know, it's typical fly fishing journal. I've got my own kind of twist on it, but uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that's valuable or do you think there's ways to, to make that valuable? Yeah, I think I think when people are are getting into it, I think it's a great thing to keep journal, you know, for a long time and however many years you feel like you don't need to look at it anymore. But I think it it does help uh, help your evolution as an angler to look back at that. And after a while, I mean, like I don't think the average gilly in Ireland or somewhere like that would be looking at their journal just because they're fishing so much that you start to realize, you know, high pressure overcast skies, bright blue day, new moon, full moon, it goes on and on, but they got a pretty good knack of knowing what's going to happen before they ever leave the house. Yeah. It's like we were talking before the show, kind of A and B and ones and zeros and kind of like a scientific or kind of approach. I feel like for me, it's useful because I'm not to that level. Like you're talking about the, the Gilly in Ireland, but, uh, it forces me to kind of analyze it. It makes me think about it. You know, it makes me kind of think about, oh, these are the things that I'm, it's almost like a little checklist. Like these are the things I'm going to kind of look at today. And then it kind of becomes more habitual and I have more of an idea about what I want to look at, which I enjoy because, and some people I totally understand, you just want to get on the river and do your thing and and have fun. (laughs) But for me, in my brain, I like I like being able to say, okay, what are the conditions? How am I going to solve this problem? And trying, trying different things based on those inputs. But if I don't even have the inputs in my brain written down, I, I feel like I'm just casting in the wind kind of. 
Oh yeah. Well, I think it, I think it's really good to keep one, like I say early on, and you'll realize there's patterns, and those patterns are what you're really learning by by keeping a journal. You're learning, you know. You, I'm sure you put water temperature and all those kind of good nuggets in there. And it's same with birds. I mean, you could you could do it just by being a bird watcher and put lots of bird feeders around your house. Yeah. Then ask the question: Why are the birds only there a couple of times a day for thirty minutes, and there's food to eat all day long? So why don't they just get fat where they can't fly? But that's not the way nature works. I mean, fish and birds, all that stuff is fairly similar. So by keeping a journal, you'll start recognizing that there's there's these activity periods that are off the hook with activity, and then there's times where it's where it's sluggish, and then you start asking yourself the question. That's the big picture. You know what I mean? The big picture of things. And I think that makes it kind of a fascinating lifetime uh, endeavor, you know? I do know. I I agree with you 100%. I read somewhere, fly fishing is the new bird watching. (laughs) I just think it's funny that we're having this conversation. I I don't know a thing about bird watching except people walk with binoculars and watch birds. But to hear you describe it and hear you talk about it like that, I can see where it's very, very similar where you're trying to figure out these patterns and understand nature and these animals or creatures in nature. And, uh, so it's interesting. I want to talk about North Carolina and some of the rivers around you, but you mentioned something that I want to stick with while we're on that topic. You talked about YouTube and how it's different now with fly tying, especially and, you know, we talked about before the show about this as well with instruction in person versus YouTube and things like that. Um, I wonder if you think there is a balance or there's a, a way to balance those things like books and YouTube and instruction. Do you think that they're all valuable in their own ways or do you think that one should be more leaned on than another or um, how do you see those integrating or do you see it um, not integrating and and that you should stick with kind of certain things? I'll tell you, (laughs) this sounds like kind of hard to say, but, but I believe it's like a heap of information. Imagine Kilimanjaro of information. All right. And let's say there's 10% nuggets that you need to learn. How do you filter through the other 90% that's a waste of your time? That's the hard part of all this information and same problem that Google's having. Like, how do they filter relevant content that's actually truth based versus just opinions? And I mean, it's the same thing at YouTube. So, no, I'm not a big fan of YouTube, to be honest, except for the time that I said, because most of the other stuff I see is (laughs) I think a lot of people just wanting to put stuff up. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of it's from ignorance, but they don't know they're ignorant yet. And of course, hopefully in a few years, they might realize, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. But I think that there's a lot of bad information is what I'm saying. So I don't know if it's really 90, 10. I just do that number. Let's say it's 75, 25. What, it, it might be the golden ratio number of 66% garbage. And there's, you know, the remainder is good stuff. Like 34% is good. I mean, I don't know what the balance is, but I know that there's more stuff that would lead you down a road to ruin then would actually help you on YouTube. If we're talking about casting and techniques and strategies and things like that, there's nobody posting strategy on YouTube. I mean, that's learned from, like you said, about going to the river and, you know what I'm saying, keeping your journal and your learning strategy by, by your mistakes. And that's really how we learn this sport is from our failures. And that's what I think people have a, a tough time because nobody likes to fail, of course, even when they're a young kid, right? But I think that's what, 
actually is our best teacher is from failure. So whoever, whoever fails the most, hopefully gets success. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I've, I just read a book called the 80, 20 principle and you know, there's a lot of stuff in the book, but a big, the big theory of the book or the big, the big principle is that 20% of the value, um, or 80% of the value comes from 20% of the input, right? So there's, like you said, there's all this information out there and, you know, most of the learning is going to happen with 20% of what is really there. That's the real 20%. And that I, I think you bring up an interesting point and something that I've thought about a lot in other things. And when I'm trying to learn something, uh, in life, you know, the a way that I've found to filter information or filter that out is to go to somebody who's already done it. Right. Like how do I how do I start a podcast? Well, I can go through Google forever and try and find what's good and what's bad. And and I did a lot of that. I did searching and stuff, but it wasn't until I found somebody who could kind of actually mentor me and say, no, this is what's really important. And and some of those people live online, but uh that you know, taking that experience from that person, it, it's an automatic filter, right? Cause they've already done all the filtering for you, you know, and that's similar with like books and stuff or if you, things like that, that you can, that you can go to and it's all kind of presented in a way that's, you know, the 20% value that you're looking for. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of value in a lot of the older books too. I talk about that on the road quite a bit, like the Eric Taverners. And when you look back at some of those iconic books out of the UK, Man, there's so many nuggets in those that those are those are priceless. If you could pass along three fly fishing books, what which would you say these are a must for people to to have if we're talking about this 80/20 and to get the most value from uh the least inputs? Oh, uh, that'd be easy. Eric Taverner trout fishing from all angles would be one of them. The uh Gary Borger I teach with Gary a lot in the winter. Gary's a scientist. Um, I mean, he's college professor, retired, lives out in Portland now. But the book presentation would have to be up there. I think Gary hit a home run with that book presentation, huge. And it's hard to find because it's it's you'll find used copies available because they only printed X number of copies. But um, wonderful book. I had my kids both read that book when they were really small, like five, six-year-old kids. And um, if they want to get a... And there's, it has a lot of things in there on casting and the angle of, you know, Fish's window and Snell's law and all that is in there. So, I mean, it's just a really good comprehensive book. And I'd say the third one, just for a fun book, if you have kids and on reading water, is the Curtis Creek Manifesto. little cartoon book that's like cheap, $8, $10 on Amazon, because that'll really, really help a kid to just read through that book with the cartoon pictures about where fish lay course that's hard to teach a kid that isn't it they're going to throw it 90 percent of the wrong water but if they read the book then they're throwing in the right areas at least have better intuition so i think that book's really valuable for for young people to read and old people too <laughs> a lot of older yeah. people that's something that i'm so grateful for my father is when i was a kid we didn't do we weren't fly fishing when I was a kid. It certainly wasn't the uh the metrodome experience with your grandfather <laughs> that you're describing with my father. But reading water, man, that was something that when I got into fly fishing when I was a teenager, 
I took that for granted. I've said it before on the show, but that's something that I think is very complex. And you know, there's a lot that I didn't know about reading water then that I've picked up over the years, especially with the nymphing and things like that. But man, that was huge. And um, yeah, so I, we'll, we'll link to some of the we'll link to those books in the show notes so people can check them out, and uh, especially that that manifesto for reading water. I think that that's a really important skill. That it's it's almost like if you have that, then I don't know. It just seems like that's a good, you can enjoy yourself on the water, kind of be less curious about where to cast, you know? Yeah. I think that makes, makes a big difference. Yeah. I want to talk about a little bit about your home waters and change gears a little bit and talk about North Carolina and some of the freestones out there. I know there's, there are tons of water. We talked about earlier being in, Bryson City, kind of the mecca, the middle of all that and all that land and water that's available. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about why it's a special fishery for you or and maybe some of the uniqueness of it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's similar to where I, where I grew up in East Tennessee. It borders the same, you know, southern Appalachia chain, like upper East Tennessee has a lot of mountains like here too. It's just there happens to be more over here. But um, yeah, the thing I like about it, I guess, Jason, is the the complexity of having a lot of obstacles. And so by nature, living in this part of the country, you're forced to become a single-handed spay caster before you know it, because the only way you're going to deal with all this complexity is to basically use, you know, a lot of spay variety casts, not, not just roll cast and not just to and from, you know, false casting. But we, we've tried to do a lot of, you know, things like, learn to fish in front of you where the line stays in front of you. Cause there's so much canopy. You'll find that it pays off big dividends on these smaller streams. So that requires to break loose with all the so-called rules like granddaddy's little book, you know, it talks about 10 and two and false casting and all that. You break all those rules living here. So I think you get, I think you get a lot of, a lot of talented uh, anglers from Western Carolina, just because they're dealing with the most complexity probably in the country. Because not only that, you got gradient, like the higher, the higher streams in the park coming off of like 60, 6,700 feet down to 1,700 feet. So you're dealing with a lot of pocket water, a lot of fast water in places. And you add that on top of the complexity of the trees. And man, you've got the perfect recipe for complexity. So it's not an easy place to learn. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember that. It's really slippery too. I remember falling a bunch and uh, maybe I need a casting or uh, maybe I need a a waiting staff or something. Do you find that contrast? You mentioned breaking the rules and the complexity and how you, you kind of forced to break the rules, but the rules are there. Those are the, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining the rules are the basics that you pick up in the beginning. So has that been interesting for you or challenging for you with guests or to come out where you're trying to teach them the basics, but you're fishing in this complex area where you kind of have to bend the rules a little bit as well. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure the fundamentals still apply, but can you talk a little bit about that contrast? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, co- we cover it more in the schools, the, the week-long um, guide schools uh, for covering like the casting and stuff. But what we'll do normally, it's like we talked before we started this, that 65% of this country fishes less than three days a year. So there's probably no point of taking them out somewhere where it's going to be that complex. So what we do is we choose an easier river, which is big and open more like a Western river where there's not a tree within a hundred yards. That's, that's usually what we'll do depending on who it is and what they're after. So 
that's just going to make the day go better for them where it keeps them from getting as frustrated. But yeah, the, fishing the park stream, like you're talking about fishing a lot of the, like you mentioned, the Ravens Fork or, or Deep Creek or Conalufty, you know, Hazel Creek. It goes on and on. There's there's like several thousand miles of trout water just in the Smokies. So those are probably going to be more um, complex for somebody if they're only going three days a year. Let's just face it. I mean, they're not going to figure that out in a lifetime if they're only going three days a year because there's not enough there's not enough days in the year that they're getting that education. Does that make sense to you? That does make sense. So they'll probably be they probably just want to stay away from it, go somewhere where it's more open. And I mean, they'll get that out of it, you know? Well, they probably enjoy themselves a little bit more too, where they're not dealing with snags and trees and the whole yeah. time. I mean, that's going to happen, but you could definitely decrease your odds by geographically placing yourself someplace where you have some advantages. Yeah. And I like the idea of having it like that. Cause I think it helps you grow more by having all this cover and, and different currents and the necessity for like piles. And I mean, huge amounts of line piling up in the, toilet bowl of an eddy and fast water on both sides you know i think that takes a lot higher level of line control and so i think it makes it really it keeps it interesting is what i'm saying especially when you're in that learning phase for people to to start going out and trying to to fish more of those wild streams like that i think it it pushes them is what i'm saying so as long as they're being pushed by the complexity of trying to pull off uh drifts in that kind of water then they're going to gain something very valuable you know what i mean and the fish will be a bonus the fish is always going to be a bonus in those scenarios learning and instruction you know that seem to be very important to you as a guide and you've got the schools and those types of things but i get the impression that if i'm going to fish with you it's not going to be just about chasing fish and i wonder if you can talk to uh, why that's important. And, you know, you talk about on your website, we're going to learn about reading water techniques, observation, hook sets, fighting fish, uh, and casting. And we're going to talk casting more later, but all these other elements of fly fishing, which go beyond just trying to catch the most fish or the biggest fish, which I like to catch a lot of fish and I like to catch big fish, but more than that, honestly, I, I like to learn because I feel like I'm just upping my odds strategically. Like over time, if I'm learning, my my probability of, of enjoying my time on the water is going to go up. So can you talk a little bit about the school and, and the lessons, instruction, and, and how you do that? Sure. Yeah, what, what you were talking about a second ago with hook setting and line control and playing fish, landing fish, those are all what we call the core components like during the whether it's a guide trip or, or the week-long school, we'll address those like one by one and really really go into detail. Um, so let's talk about just hook set for a second for fun. Hook setting is an acquired skill, just like casting or any other technique that we're using in the sport. And part of the issue is, is people think, well, I fished as a kid, you know, might have been a Mitchell Garcia or whatever, and they think that they learned to set the hook on bass that doesn't really translate to what fly line does because fly line's floating on the water it's a whole different ball game so big thing is if we're floating down a river and somebody's say they're say they're nymphing or wet fly off the side throwing it across and down well then you're trying to get people to you know set the hook downstream and i know this sounds funny but i can tell you from guiding for 
as many years as I've been at this, it might take somebody 30, 40 attempts before they finally move the rod the right way. So, so even though you're telling them, did they do it? No. So <laughs> that's why it's a learned, it's a learned skill, isn't it? We can't even remember which way's downstream because they got a habit of 40 times the wrong way. So you can imagine by, by addressing that, here's the thing, the reality that nobody wants to come out and say is this. Most people are around 10% anglers. You know what I'm saying? And it's easy to see because they got to start somewhere. So 10% when they're new, they'll, they'll land. For every 10 fish that hit, they'll land one of them, hook one and have it on. Well, that's a lot of disappointment for a day on the water to have the other 90% never be hooked up knowing it was a fish and they didn't get it. Does that make sense? So so it kind of works that way in the fact that that's why we talk a lot about hook set, like the, the kids that just won over in Bosnia a few weeks ago at the World Championship. They didn't just learn to set the hook by going fishing a bunch. They got coached how to do that. I mean, and, and they had epic numbers. A lot of those sessions, some of those kids were pulling in almost a fish a minute for three-hour sessions. So to be able to do that, that's a, that's a learned behavior. Besides setting downstream, what are some other things with hook setting that you, you're teaching these kids? Well, I mean, it's just there's a whole bunch of components that I can incorporate in the line hand as well as the rod movement. I mean, it's not just one or the other. It's like, and it doesn't have to be fast and hurried um, as long as the line, like say you've got a floating line, if that's what we're fishing, I mean, because everything's a little different when we, when we talk about sink lines or intermediate lines. But with the floater, the line will slide in the water the way it's laying, okay? So, so the worst thing that can happen is try to break that bond of meniscus and fly line like a magnet and steel to lift vertically. To lift vertically, you're just expending all the energy on breaking this bond, which makes a splash of the line ripping off the water. And, and very little hook sets happened at the end because you spent all your energy moving the line off the water. Well, why not leave it in the water and slide it in the water? That's a whole lot more effective. To give you an idea, say, say with a floating line, let's say dry fly, for instance, that's how we strike is line hand and rod in unison and moving it the proper direction. And then, boom, the, the, the fish on the hook set's already been moved you know, 15, 20 feet towards you just on the hook set itself. That's a dominating hook set instead of just barely moving the fly at all. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of things that are learned and it's like, it's kind of like when you brought that up, those core components are really important, but I think a lot of it goes back to even what Thoreau said about many men go fishing without realizing it's not the fish they're after. I think it takes people a long time to get to that point of Thoreau. Cause I think of course, when people are new, it's all about the fish. Well, I talk about this on the road quite a bit, but I'll put it to you like this. How many other sports of anything, whether it's, you know, golf or running or whatever it might be, mountain biking, flying jets, I don't care what it is, would you put the goal in front of the process? And that's what's so funny dealing with, you know what I mean? The older I get, the less, <laughs> like somebody wants to start out, but they just want to go catch a bunch of fish as a brand new beginner. They just think how silly that is. I mean, they got zero skill. And, and they're trying to put the goal in front of the process. And so those kind of things, usually I'll put one of my guides with them because I, I did a lot of those in the early years. And it's like, I want I want to get a little bit more serious about somebody that wants to learn personally. But that's how I kind of pick and choose what day I'm going out the door. <laughs> that makes sense. The goal before the process. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a strategy for learning, right? And that's no. what a lot of my listeners are trying to do, I think, is just trying to progress and get better over time. Right. Uh, and with the time on their water and use the time on the water that they do have to to optimize 
for that kind of progress over time. Oh yeah. Uh, because even if you only go that three times a year, if you're that person, you know, yeah, I would still want to try and get better. I mean, I, I know that I'm, I'm not making a huge dent, but I could get better, uh, in increments a little bit uh, over time. Oh yeah. If you go back to those five, you said from cast line control, hook set, playing fish and landing fish, those are all five the components of what you're trying to get better at. And I think that's what's not, you know, it's funny what you brought that up because I've been trying to, this has been happening a lot with a lot of these different board meetings and things for uh, <laughs> fly fishing boards. And it's like, you know, what's the value? If you put a, a social media post on Instagram, what is the value of a nice cast? And I think until society starts to say, yeah, I deem that that's important or I want that, you know, that's not what we see, though. I mean, what do we normally see? You see gripping grins and everybody's posting fish, fish, fish. And it's like, so once again, it's even that. Not to say I don't like seeing fish. I love seeing fish. But we're always posting the goal <laughs> over what got that goal. And I think that's kind of ironic. It just tells you where people are, like, in general, because the masses definitely aren't valuing a nice cast. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's all those things are just totally ignored, but they want the goal. Yeah. Well, it's like that in a lot of things, right? We want, people want the quick fix. They want to take the diet pill. They don't want to, you know, they want the hack, the hack for good That's right. uh, fitness. And they want to skip the steps and just give me a, give me the, oh, yeah. you know, but if you're going to have, you know, you got to eat well and exercise right that's pretty you got to do the work and then the goal happens after you do the work I, I think that sometimes people have a problem not always but you know we talk about exercise seems fairly easy you know exercise and eat right uh is pretty standard kind of knowledge but sometimes maybe it's not as obvious you know in hunting or fishing or something like that uh, which is why I think it's cool with what you're doing where you're breaking it down and saying, okay, no, these are the things that you need to, this is the process. Right. Right. I mean, if we don't examine what the process is, if it's not obvious, then it's kind of hard to, you know, jump into that pool if we don't know what, what, where we need to jump or where the pool is. So, um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that or uh, I, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, do you find that? But also I, I wanted to ask you these core components, casting as being one of them, do you find that people either don't know the core components or that they lean too much on one? That's something that I perceive. I perceive people, whether it's casting or reading water or whatever, I think Sometimes people, myself included, I focus too much on one element and I kind of forget that there's all these other parts of it. Not just like picking flies, but just all the different parts of fly fishing. Well, I think there's a lot of stuff, I mean, out there. No, don't take this the wrong way, but I think that what happens is, because I just know from trips over the years, when, when something's not happening for somebody, the first thing they want to say is, Jason, let's change the fly. They think it's a fly problem, and it's them 99.9% .9 of the time. So just think of the ignorance of that, of always thinking it's a fly. And then what does the fly shop have to gain? I'm not picking on a fly shop because their business is selling flies, but let's look at the reality. So then they come back to the shop, and they buy a couple of dozen more flies. That they, It's like they're just a sucker. How long are they going to be a sucker before they realize, I need to be a, 
a big fish. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, that's why no, people. I don't think shops are doing it, though. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't think shops, 90% of them across this country, I don't think they're doing their job. They're making memories with those one to three day anglers, but they're having them lob a bobber eight feet over the side of a boat, which is what we see 90% of America now. So I would argue the fact that most people are missing the boat entirely, if that's what they perceive fly fishing is. I mean, we don't buy $1,000 rods and $150 fly lines to throw a bobber eight feet. I mean, we're totally missing the picture here. Does that make sense? And I mean, if I speak truth, I don't mind just saying the truth because that's what I see. It, It really saddens my heart when I go out west all these years. I've been going out there since 1965. It saddens me to see the regression that we've already seen in the last 20 years across this country. There is people that value these things we're talking about. Don't get me wrong. There's some very, very adept folks, but I'm saying that's not even close to the majority. We're talking like the 1% values of these things, but why can't we get the majority to value these things? Well, I think that I, I agree. I don't think fly shops are doing it on purpose. I do think that sometimes the fly does make a difference and you know, sometimes it's important to to change flies, but there's a reason why people have confidence flies too, right? And and there's a reason why yeah. great anglers have confidence flies and they use those flies and they only deviate from those flies in very specific situations and they do it deliberately. And that's something that I'm working towards myself is like, okay, these, I know these flies are what they, if, I, if presented well, they're going to catch fish. Now, there might be a circumstance where color matters or you know, you know certain things like that, but that's right. No, yeah. No, it, it can matter. I can't say that it never matters for sure. Because there's, there's times like on the South Holston, for instance, I fish the Holston a lot still, which is up where I grew up. And um, it's about two and a half hours away. But because it's a tailwater and it's very hatch dependent, there's a lot of there's a lot of bug life on that river. And yeah, if I'm going to the Holston, I'm definitely going to have a lot of sulfurs because they hatch year round over there. So I'm going to fish a lot of Ephemerilla Dorothea flies, okay, CDC, a lot of the the um, pretty realistic wets for that specific hatch because I know I'm going to the Mecca of sulfurs. That's one of the best sulfur rivers in the world. So I'd be silly to show up without a sulfur. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I I, I think uh, I was talking to Jason Randall about this a little bit, and I think I don't want to butcher his quote or what he was saying, but it's kind of like he's got – you know, 10 flies that he uses 90% of the time. And then 10% of the time he's got some flies he'll go to that he's going to use. And I think that's valuable, but beyond just picking flies, I also think that we talk about out West and fish and bobbers and stuff. I think that the guest matters and the, the relationship between the guest and the guide and, and what they're trying to get too, right? If you've got someone on the water who doesn't understand and doesn't care to understand anything that we're talking about, like process and progress and getting better. And I'm just in town because I was in Yellowstone tourist, tourist, uh, oh, yeah. and I want to, I want to catch a, rib, a fish. Well, we're going to, you you know, oh, yeah. you can't cast, and no, you're not like, looking yeah. to cast, you know, they're paying customer and they need, you know, they're going to try and get them to catch a fish and and that can still be a a wonderful experience. And maybe that sparks some interest and maybe then they do go down these other roads that we're talking about. So I think that that. Oh yeah. And they do it here too. Don't think. (laughs) I I mean, 
first guide here, I was the only guide in Western Carolina back in 86. There wasn't any guiding. And I started the delayed harvest in 91, and now there's 400 guides between Asheville and Bryson. So I know what you're saying. And I see it here. Well, they're throwing bobbers here the most too, but what you got to ask the big picture. What is it they're after, like down the road? So if you're a retail shop and you're running 20 guides, are you just after the the joy of getting them to lob something 10 feet? And I mean, to be honest with you, what I see with that problem is is really more of this. Would you stay a guide if that was what you were doing every day on the water? How many years would you make it? You'd probably get out of it after four or five because you'd get you'd probably get tired of it if that's all you did. So I think that that's why if you're going to stay in it, like Watton, Davey Watton down in Arkansas is a good friend of mine. Davey did all kinds of stuff in fly tying, wet fly world. There's no way Davey would still be doing what he's doing if he didn't teach like the same avenue of what I went down years ago, because that's really the part that brings you passion. Yeah. You follow me? Because you can see it happen and you see what you can produce. And then all of a sudden you realize, man, I love this. Because now you somebody goes away and has an appreciation that they can you know, make a roll cast 50, 60 feet if they want. Now they're not stuck at 25. Right. And who did that was you working with them. So, I mean, that's kind of a cool thing too. Well, and it's not, it's a difference between guiding and instructing, I would think, or, you know, yeah, I'm not a guide, never been a guide, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but I do know what it's like to instruct and I understand the value of instruction for personal reasons. I understand how it can make you feel to help somebody get that light bulb moment to progress through a difficult situation. I, I understand that quite a bit actually. And I, I think that, yeah, that person, uh, well, let me ask you, what are some things or how would, how would you, if you are the person that wants to progress, that wants to not put the goal before the process, you know, what would, what would be, you know, two or three nuggets of advice that you would give them, uh, starting out or maybe they're not starting out maybe they're intermediate or whatever i don't know what label you want to put on it but they've they're they're not going for the first time and they're going more than three times a year you know they're out there they're trying to get better uh where do they need to go back to or where do they need to where would you tell them to invest the 20 percent? right what what would you say here's what you need to do you need to stop just going to the river blindly you need to do these things well, the first thing, obviously, would be practice their casting at home in the lawn before they, you know what I mean? And you can't be learning that on the river. If you're throwing a tailing loop every second attempt at trying to throw to a fish, just think how that's going to frustrate you to make you not want to fish anymore. Fix that at home, like in the yard. And there's there's tons of good things to do that, to get an honest assessment. Like one of the things that's kind of exciting right now, the Fly Fishers International is doing is uh, what's called the Bronze Silver Gold Challenge which is really some some great task to see am I on the right path, you know. We're talking about hitting a target within, and you got several feet of uh, of accuracy to hit this target at only 35 feet. Like how many, you know, if you, if you get out there and you're six feet off from the target, then you got some work to do. So there's an honest assessment. And it's only five tasks, you know. But it's like start somewhere to say here's a, here's a nice – way to measure where I am. And then, oh, that bronze, finally you got it. Because when you do that, somebody's going to help you through that, even if you're a total beginner, to get you where you need to be. And then the next thing, they can go for the silver, the gold. And, you know, they give you a little plaque and everything once you get it. And, I mean, I just think that's a neat thing because so many times, you know, people will 
will just want to talk about their expertise is because they've been to Montana or been to Alaska. Nobody cares that somebody's been to Alaska <laughs> or Montana. Is yeah. it Does that make sense? We could care less about that. Can you get the fly where it needs to be on this trip right now? That's what's important, right? Is it God? Because we don't want to hear movie stories. And that's what a lot of older people want to tell you always is a God in 40 years. It's always stories. And I spent 18 years in Chile and New Zealand in the winter. And it's like guiding down there. I mean, that's the best Mecca in the world to be God. I mean, to be working, you know, and I don't like hearing all this. <laughs> Believe me, if I had a nickel for every phone call over the last 40 years about the chit chat of I went to Alaska, <laughs> you know what I mean? It means supposed to mean something, but it doesn't mean much to me. Well, it's ego too. People have egos and I think it's insecurity as well. Maybe, you know, Yeah. sometimes people, they, you know, they're, they're trying to, I don't know, maybe they're trying too hard to, 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 to try and like, Hey, I, I, I'm not a beginner or I, I'm not, uh, you don't need to do this or that or the other thing. But I mean, I think what's, what's better, you know, is to say, Hey, what, what can I be doing? And just, I just feel like every time I go with a guy, it's such a opportunity, you know, and I don't go a ton, but with guides. But yeah. when I do, man, holy smokes, I really, really want to pick his brain. And and I try very hard in the beginning to tell them, look, I am not here just because I want to catch a big fish or a lot of fish, or I want you to put my son on a fish, or I really want to learn today. Oh, yeah. I want you, I want you to, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I want to know what I can do better. I want to know how I can progress like in my casting and in my presentation things like that. And some of the other things like reading water, um, you know, he's going to help you more directly, but oh, yeah. you know, some of those things are not as obvious, I guess. And I think there's a value there. That's right. I think it all starts at the first of the first component myself personally, because that's why, I mean, obviously the book you talked about, I wrote most of that when I was a 13 to 15 year old kid. And it was from solving problems and, and, tight places in Appalachia, which is what made me get curious about, well, I wasn't seeing a lot of the stuff I was talking about in books. And I thought, well, this is what it is because this keeps you out of all the cover. This is enabling you to pull off the drift. This is what's enabling the fish to eat it. And to me, that was fascinating because there was a lot of times I'd go home, Jason, and of course I didn't solve it there on the water. So I'd go home and it would haunt me at night going to bed. I'd be thinking over and over like, what could I have done different? Then I'd write it down before I went to sleep and I'd go back and I'd have it solved the next day. A lot of times my best thinking as a kid was always right before I'd go to sleep, you know. But I think I think getting a delivery, you know, answering like what can people do? Definitely bring a delivery because, I mean, that's the biggest complaint around the world for Grand Trevally in Australia and Key West guides. I mean, nobody has a delivery. How am I supposed to guide somebody for a permit when they don't have a delivery? We're not even in the game. It's like coach put me in. <laughs> Well, like, so, I mean, you realize how, how often that happens? And it's like, I'm not saying this to be mean, but, but hopefully motivate people to say, bring a delivery. Well, you said before we started recording, you said good, bad, and ugly with shit technique can get you 40 yards. <laughs> right. I thought that That's was not great. The delivery I'm talking about either. I mean, I mean, bring a delivery. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you another thing for the kids, like coaching the youth kids over the years that, that I'm a big fan of, and I've run a college program for years. Once we get this delivery where, where it needs to be, we're also pretty pretty big during the guide schools even of saying, look, 
you got a pickup and you got a delivery. Everything's a delivery. It's not waving it back and forth. And I mean, every commercial you've seen on TV about our sport, whether it's aspirin or, you know what I mean, insurance company, what does it show? Somebody out there waving it back and forth, waving it some more and waving it some more. And it's like, no, bring a delivery. That, that's unacceptable as far as being a solid delivery. Does that make sense? That's, that's hurting people's ability on the water because then you're making all this extra motion and shadows and fish are fleeing to the next county and they're wondering why they're not eating their fly. That does make sense. I want to talk more about bringing the delivery and some more about casting angles in the book and some of the rules of thumb that you have from there. But I kind of want to go back to this core components versus casting. And this is something that I noticed and I wonder your opinion is, do you think that of the core components, casting is the most important and that's why it gets the most emphasis? It just seems like... Well, I mean, you have these casting instructions, casting lessons that are available, but it's harder to find someone who's going to go out and actually teach you more of the reading water and fighting fish and some of those other components, which I think are also equally, um, or at least very important, maybe not equally, but uh, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Do you think it's unbalanced or that's the way it needs to be? Casting needs to be. Well, a lot of these things are are easy to, um, what we'll call the the lowest hanging fruit. And that's the easiest lowest hanging fruit to go grab, to progress to the other things that we're talking about. Because with with that's not there, then we're out of luck, aren't we? I mean- Well, you can practice it without going fishing, right? So if you've only got three days a year, yeah. That's why I think that's a good pro. This bronze, silver, gold, I think is going to be good. I hope it gets some interest across the country with, you know, young people in clubs. Um, Just because I do think it's a very good- thing to help because see what it is is they're actually going to be getting some help trained at these kind of things to where they're not getting that i mean youtube's not talking back to these people are they so i mean having somebody (laughs) that knows how to make these things happen is going to be immense immensely helpful for somebody that's trying to to get that so i'd say yeah that does have to happen i think the other things are actually fairly easy i mean hook setting i think is easier to teach once they just know what it is they're trying to do you know so I would be lying if I said, yeah, casting is going to be easy. No, it's not. Because every good, really elite, what I consider a world-class instructor and caster that understands it as well as can perform it has spent a lot of time getting to that point. Does that make sense? Because it took a while for him to be there. It does. Can you describe that bronze, silver, gold thing with a little more detail and just talk specifically about what it is and how people can get involved in that or, or do that? Yeah, it'll be on the um, F- the the Flyfishers International website. It'll have uh, dates and places across the country where they can find info on that. But it's basically going through this this process of here's five tasks. You know, there's a roll cast on the first bronze level. Even the roll cast is it's not a long wave. It's very doable. But if there's if there's not any technique there, then then it's going to be tough to pull that off at a short distance. You know. Cause it's on grass. It's not on the water. It's just on grass. So, so I just think it spells out and I'm not saying that's the Holy grail of casting. It just is somebody, everything got to start somewhere. And what it is, the silver progresses where it's a little bit harder. Now they're asking for five feet more, you know, I mean, then, then when they started the bronze and the gold's a little bit harder cause it adds a few more feet to all these different tasks and it adds some other things into it. Is it just like a local competition that you go to in different areas that are kind of scheduled out? No, it's not a competition at all. It's more of a learning environment for fun. It's about a fun environment 
to help people get jump started to move away from like we talked about lobbing bobbers 10 feet. How, how, that's not going to take them, but so far. I mean, just think of the number of waters around the world that if that's the only thing that they've been doing, that they're just going to be able to look and watch fish feed because they're not going to be able to, to fish there. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think of spring creeks and all the technical kind of waters that I've fished in my lifetime. That'd be out the window because a lot of these places you got to actually, you got to perform. And otherwise, it's no point of being there unless you just like looking at fish eat from far away. You have to be able to perform to reach them and, and put off, you see. Is it is it hosted by fly shops or is it hosted by the FFI? It'll be FFI and it'll be like, then it's kind of cool too. So if you took it like right now, Jason, and say you got your bronze, then you could go help other people get their bronze. So it's not just like an instructor that has to teach you. Like once you've already achieved it, then you can go help give it. And if you got your silver, then you could help people get through the silver by telling them, hey, this is what I did and this helped me. You know, just the little tidbits that you'd help somebody with immensely in their casting stroke. And so it's really about loop control, isn't it? When we start talking about all this stuff, it's about can they control a loop to make it do what they're trying to do? And, of course, at first that seems hard for people if they don't have any idea what it is they're trying to do except throw it out there. And, of course, that's where the – the learning kind of starts. That's why I say it's in a fun environment and it's educational to help them grow their skill set. That's why I think it'll be a good program. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Let's talk about casting angles and some more about casting. And I know it's kind of tough to not be able to to show people demonstrating, but I wonder if you can speak to some of the basic principles or some of the things you would say, these are you know three or five things that really you could try to incorporate into your habit patterns that would that would affect your casting in a positive way. If I focus on these three to five things in the yard or when I'm fishing, what are what would some of those things be fundamentally? Well, the first one would be loop control, probably just uh, forming forming a loop, and not always a narrow loop, but being able to throw narrow and medium and large loops all at, all at once and have the legs be parallel. In other words, when you cast, I mean, everybody that's already fished, they've seen this candy cane of line flying through the air. So are those legs parallel to one another? But I don't care if it's horizontal or 45 degrees or vertical, but let's say are the legs remaining? Let's just say there's grail number one. Can the legs remain parallel? And, of course, that sounds really easy, and it is easy, but it's it's not easy if they're moving improperly, is it? So. So there's a simple rule to fix that for number two would be whatever the line does, the rod tip had to do. And whatever the rod tip did, then there has to be an accountability issue on the person holding the rod. So how do you fix it? Change the person holding the rod to change the rod tip to change the loop. So the only way to get to that is number three would be to take a phone and film yourself. Once you know it is, you know what you're trying to accomplish. Then film yourself a lot and be critical about looking at what you're doing, good, bad, and ugly. And you'll learn from all three. Don't ever think that the bad is not something worthy because it's just as worthy as something that feels excellent and looks excellent. You follow me? So, so that's how I think that I get on the path of starting to understand how this, how this kind of fits together. So it takes a little bit of work. Yeah, filming in the yard. But I think that the, the benefits are great because then they'll start to understand how to change something on the fly instantly. And that's, that's important. Can you talk about the getting the rails parallel? Is that what you're talking about? The top and bottom of the candy cane? Is it, are those the rails? Yeah, just the fly line. I mean, having them remain parallel just means the fly leg, whatever the 
rod tip does when you're in your casting stroke from point A to B. In other words, where you started and where you stopped will dictate how the fly leg looks. So if the line is supposed to be straight, it stands to reason that at some point there's going to have to be a rod tip. It's a, we call it straight line path, which is the tip forming a straight line to make something straight. And that all has to do with then how you, how you, um, how you power the rod. Because as you know, if you grab a rod, even with no line on it, and you hit it pretty abrupt and quick, what's going to happen to the tip right away? It's going to deflect. It's going to bend just off the inertia of you hitting it. So if it does that, then all of a sudden, now you don't have an SLP. You're going to have a, a line that dips and comes back up. There's your tailing loop. You mean that, that's an easy way to describe tailing loop. What if you want, say, a, a big wide loop that's rounded like this that goes out and piles up a bunch of line? That, that can be a good thing in fishing. So how do we do that? But then we power the rod slowly the whole way through the stroke. And that way you never gave it that SLP that we just talked about. Then you're on the path of having some control for, for pile cast, which a lot of times pile cast are your bread and butter in pocket. Water. Yeah. I was just talking to uh, a guy about that pile cast. We were on the Beaverhead river and we were doing that pile cast to try and yep. catch fish. And uh, it was working a little bit. Just give you a longer float. In other words, a longer float. And I think that's really what it is when people are getting started, you know, talking about nuggets that'll get them there quick. They start to understand that their actions and movements, because it's really pretty simple. I mean, when we talk about casting, if you just talk about pause, power, and path. So if you want to go straight, like the fly leg back to being straight, then you're going to have to move straight. I mean, I mean, you're going to have to have a rod tip path that stays straight at some point. So what about timing? How does that enter into the equation? What happens if what happens if somebody goes back and doesn't wait? Now, proper time is not a forgiving time. Proper time means proper time, just like in music or anything else. I mean, there's a time to make a note and there's a time to have space in between the note and music. So same thing in casting. If we do it, let's look at the other thing there with timing. This would be number four. If we do it too late, what happens is it drops and then back in the water. Well, then we violate what we call the 180 rule. So the 180 rule is really a simple concept for anyone that's ever tight lined, like a, you know, tight lining, nymphing or anything like that. If you want to throw to a tight lined, like a, you know, tight lining, nymphing or anything like that. If you want to throw to a specific spot, then the line better start opposite of that spot. That's what it's saying. So if the line's sitting 90 degrees and you're trying to cast 90 degrees target and it's already off the ma- the mass of where the, the nymph is, you're not going to make it to where you want to go because it's not lined up in the same railroad tracks, is it? And that's what people learn, like when they start tight lining. So that rule holds true even with fly lines. So, so the other example is what happens if we go back and we, we come forward too quick and we didn't wait long enough to have timing be established and we snap the fly off. And that's called the $5 cast because these days flies costing closer to $5 and you lost it just because of a bad cast. Does that make sense? So what do you got to do to fix it? Wait longer. But not too long. There's a just right. There is a just right out there. That's where I said filming yourself with the phone to see where is at this point. And a lot of people will say over the years, and this is really incorrect, they'll say, Jason, wait till the line gets out and straightens. Now, here's the problem with that. If the line gets out and straightens, there's no more energy in the line. You've already lost tension. So what it is, when we're talking about this timing, it varies to a lot of things. It varies to things like 
how fast it, how fast are you moving this thing back and forth? How fast it's flying? So that's going to change the timing. How much line do you have out is going to change the timing. You know what I mean? Even relative to talking about the speed that it's moving, but if I'm casting 60 feet versus 20 feet, there's a big difference in how much my timing is going to change. Yeah, that's something that I'm teaching my son is the time, the difference. I'm like, you see how you have more line out, you have to wait longer. And you have that's less right. line out, you have less weight less. I mean, that's pretty basic. That's that's my fly instruction. That's my fly, oh, yeah. fly, well, fly casting instruction here, Mac, from uh, Jason to his son. But power is a tricky thing. Power depends on your intent of what it is you're trying to do. So the thing that makes it really fun if you like creativity stuff, which it's kind of funny because somebody asked me that on the road in Denver last year, and I told them right off the bat. I didn't even hesitate to say it. Most of the casting geeks around the world that teach a lot at a high level, they're all musicians. Go figure. Like, I'm a musician. I played Celtic fiddle since I was five years old. I play bluegrass guitar. I play jazz guitar. I play Grateful Dead guitar. I play all kinds of guitar. But everyone I know that's really drawn to this sport has another love of timing and another element. So that kind of makes it, I mean, I know it sounds silly, but it's like, look at it like this. Because I've played enough festivals, big festivals over the years out in when I go on the road and play concerts and you look out at the audience, what do you do when 70% of them are clapping on the offbeat? They can't even find a downbeat in music. So then ask yourself, how hard is it going to be? And that's bad to say, but it's true. Those people are going to be a tougher case to teach casting. <laughs> the timing. Harder with the timing. No, but it is rhythm. It is all about yeah, rhythm. Yeah. If somebody can't clap in time, guess what? Back to what I said my granddaddy did when he was little, when I was small, there's a reason people bring a metronome. So it's keeping that rhythm for you. You hear it, tick, tick, tick. You hear the, the amount of ticks. I do think that in order to become fluent in casting, then we could do things like listen to metronomes, listen to good music. There's a lot of things that people could learn to clap on the downbeats, what I'm saying. That would be instrumentally important just as much as sitting out practicing with the line is to learn to have rhythm. Wow. Listening to good music. That is some good fly casting yeah. instruction. Oh, yeah. I've not thought of it that way, but it makes sense. Rhythm, it certainly is important and practice and those things. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that stuff. Is there anything else? Well, I was going to ask, is there one or two like bad habits that people bring to you that are, that were, they're just your, you know, if you could say, these one or two bad habits you would if you could erase them from the planet you'd you'd wave a wand and say these things got to go yeah too much power most people cast way too too much they cast too fast too hard like they're trying to throw a ball to to the moon and back you know so that's usually a man thing women don't do that kids don't do that but men do so men men tend to use way too much power um and the other one I'd say would be learning to pull a rod rather than try to push a rod. You can't push a string forward. Just I mean, just like a lawn sprinkler in the yard. What happens if you want to move the sprinkler? The only thing you can do is pull the hose till the hose becomes straight. Now there's tension and the sprinkler moves. What happens if you walk to the sprinkler with a hose? Nothing. The sprinkler sits still till you get the other end 180 degrees. Then it'll pull it. So a string needs to be pulled into a cast. You know, I should call it, we'll call it fly line. I mean, but it's basically a string. Let's face it. It's got a braided monofilament core with some plastic on it. So it's really a string. So in order for that string to fly efficiently, 
we have to pull it into position to let it do its thing. If you try to push it into position, then big problems happen. You know, like a lot of problems happen. There's the ugly part of casting. You know what I mean? Because most people tend to push when they're learning because they don't understand pulling. So I'd say that's a big part of the um, thing that people bring. Yeah. I want to wrap up casting and move on to, uh, I have a couple of questions about North Carolina. I want to ask, I want to kind of rifle through, but uh, is there anything else about casting that you would pass along any kind of words of encouragement or advice that we, before we move on to the river? Oh yeah. Get in the yard, practice, just practice a little bit, practice in the yard. People can do a lot just by getting out there and practicing it in the yard, you know, look at some good, look at some good, uh, Video. I mean, the stuff that's out there, there's good stuff out there. Unfortunately, the really good stuff is not the real popular stuff. Like I looked at this stuff <laughs> when YouTube came out. I mean, I looked last year and it's funny. Like you see world champions, 38 times world champion buried on page 15. <laughs> and you can imagine in the industry what comes up in the first position. Does that make sense? So it's like yeah. go to page 15. In other words, that'll give you a hint. So look at look up names like, I mean, look at watch uh, tournament style Casters, Maxine McCormick, phenomenal. Best best thing that's ever happened to North America is uh, Maxine McCormick. Look at her style. She's got stuff on YouTube where people filmed her. She's won multiple world championships, set the highest accolades in the history of tournament casting going back to 1858. You want to watch somebody that's like textbook perfect? Just watch her. That's the form you're wanting to emulate. That's what we teach on the road. And it's like that's what we were talking about a little bit before we got started. It's not like cast like Jason or cast like, you know, Gary Borger. I mean, what you want to do is cast like the best in the world have done for 150 years. And that's all the same. It's not different from one to the next. That that style of casting is pretty much in concrete of what we know to be proper, efficient casting, if that makes any sense. Makes sense. It's physics and the loading and the, the, the laws of physics are kind of unchangeable laws. Yeah, the way the body moves—that's what you're watching when you watch when you watch Maxine on, or Steve Rajev or Tim Rajev or any of these good casters, Chris Koritz. There's tons of them in North America. There's a lot of really good casters. But what I want you to think about is this: if you look at all of them, you're going to notice they're all moving the same way. They're all moving the same way. So it's like there's your there's your technique. That's what you're trying to emulate. Because I know people talking on a podcast without <laughs> casting and doing a video. Well, I mean, when we got to you know, say some things where to go watch, like who are you going to watch? That's really important. Well, I think that's important. Yeah. If you are going to watch videos on YouTube, like make sure they're the right ones. And how do you know they're the right ones? We'll find the, find the best, find the best ones out there. All right. North Carolina. Yeah. Let's go through some of these. Uh, if you could only fish out there two days of the year, Mac, which two days would you fish and how would you fish them? Which two days? Yeah. Two days. Um, I'd come in March. I'd fish in March because um, I like March. We've got we we're off to the earliest hatches in North America, and our quill gordons start coming off about the middle of February. And of course, that's a great big clumsy mayfly. It's like a size ten hook, a great big. You know, it's bigger than your thumb is wide. It's a big morsel of food when the water's cold and it's heating up for springtime, and that awakens a lot of really good quality brown trout in this part of the country and they're predators. They'll, they'll sit up in their 
food lane waiting to see a quill float by, and that's some of the best dry fly fishing of the year. And we also have black caddis going on then. We have some Hendrickson's going on then, and we have March Browns. So I would say the first week of March. You're going to spend both your days in March? Yeah, I'll take them both in March. Yeah, that's, <laughs> okay. going, to be epic. that's going to be the best of the year. Dry fly fishing in March. All right. Uh, for a more beginner to intermediate fly tire, what are a couple of flies that I could tie if I was coming out to fish in North Carolina that would be good? Um, you know, fairly simple, not too many materials, but, you know, generic kind of yeah. make it into your confidence fly box type of thing. Yeah, because I'm big on that. Well, you talked about, I mean, I believe that about my guide box, I carry 12 patterns. Now, they're not all the same size, but there's only 12 patterns. And definitely, like this time of year, what's going on is terrestrial season. Terrestrial season starts here in about first week of June, and it'll last up until about mid-October. So I would say a mop, a mop fly, a green mop fly to match. And here's why. It's not just a little tiny inchworm that people think of and the East Coast. We have hundreds of varieties of green worms that fall out of trees here in Appalachia. We have the highest species diversification of inchworms in the world. We also have the highest deciduous trees in the world in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So the inchworm is king here in the summertime. And so, yeah, that's that's super easy fly. You just grab a, a chenille. My, my good friend Jim Estes, who, who was really instrumental in me, helping me back when I moved here when I was 20 years old. He's the guy that came up with that pattern back in the early 90s. And they actually fished it in Bosnia again a few weeks ago for the world championship. That was a big part of the numbers of fish they're adding on. So that's definitely one of my top. And I like it because it's simple, Jason. I like flies I can tie in 12 seconds. You know, 12-second fly, that's hard to beat. No, I like them too. That's why I asked. Anything else? Well, no, I mean, that'd be one of my favorite ones. But of course, wet flies too. I fish a lot of wets. If we go back to March, you know, talking about in March, I fish a lot of uh, traditional wets and I fish a lot of partridge type wet flies, just partridge and um, just wrap that on a on a hook, put, build a little body up and just put a partridge fly on there. I mean, turn it one time at the front and go fish it. I mean, that's that's a deadly pattern. It's only two materials. You know, for, for tying a real simple partridge. No, those are good. Those are good flies. What's something that has surprised you recently out there fishing in North Carolina? Maybe something that you, unless um, you forgot and relearned or something that surprised you on the water? Well, one thing surprised me is the last two weeks on the water in the morning, and we've been like 57 degrees on a freestone. So when we look at the, what's going on on the South Platte and a lot of the rivers across the country right now, it's incredibly hot out west. It's incredibly hot up north. Like I talked to Jason last night, you mentioned Jason Randall, and he was saying it was going to be up near 100 in Wisconsin over in the Driftless yesterday and today. And it's just like, it blows me away that these places can be so cold in the winter and so hot in the summer. And we're really blessed here to be really uniform. Like it, it got 90 degrees yesterday, which is the hottest day we've had this year. And, you know, we're complaining because it's 90, but then you look around the country and you realize, well, we're, we're one of the coolest places in the country still. So our water temps stay in good shape all season long here, which I'm thankful for that. Most memorable fish or a fish where you maybe lost it and learned something? It could be a guest or something. Uh, it could be, doesn't have to be the most, but one of the most memorable fish where you maybe learned something or had a good memory. Oh man, there's been a lot of those uh, with clients and, you know, on my own time as well. So 
I'm trying to think which one I'll tell you here. Um, probably the most memorable is a, a really good client that was a doctor down in Tampa, and he passed away at New Year's in 2020. And um, I'd worked with him for probably 30 years before he, you know, got older and had a hard time holding the rod, and we were floating down the river and getting towards the takeout at the end, and he, he struggled that day probably more than any time I've ever had him out in 30 years. And his son was doing good, but he was struggling, you know, he'd hook stuff and he'd let go of the line and fish would get off. And so I got down near the bottom and actually trolled the drift boat side to side and just kept thinking, I knew I was in a good spot, had two wet flies on the end. And he got that one in and I saw the line tighten up and took off up river to make sure the fit, cause he let go of the line, but I was moving so fast upstream, it kept tension on it. And he landed it. It was a 29 inch wild brown trout swim up out of the lake. And that was probably one of the most memorable because he, he started crying. It was really emotional thing for him. And he told me he didn't think he'd be back, you know, that next year because he knew it was coming, I guess. And he passed away on New Year's and this was in November. And so then, then when, when I think of that, that's definitely one of the most memorable things. Being on the water over the years to see that happen and bring joy to somebody like that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Mac. That is a powerful story. Oh yeah, that that touched that touched me a, a great deal that that day. It's amazing how this activity of being out on the water can be so special for people. You know, can mean that much to somebody, and just in the you know the end of their life to be that important. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, well, it gets worse though, Jason. That story not worse, but it gets even sadder because. <laughs> when his son called to tell me that he had passed away, he said they had open casket and he had his waiters and vest and everything and a picture of that and the rod that I built for him in the in the casket. Then I got all choked up. But but then it made me realize that that was powerful. That was really that's one of the most powerful things in all the years of guiding and working with people for me. Wow. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is I had pretty... to think of <laughs> That is pretty special. That was a special day. (laughs) That is a special day. And I appreciate you sharing that, man. And I appreciate you sharing everything you've shared today. Um, I want to start wrapping it up. But before I ask my last question, Mac, how can people find out more about you and uh, maybe schedule a lesson or a guided trip or some instruction, something like that? Sure. The easiest thing is just probably the website, either macbrownflyfish.com or uh, flyfishingguideschool.com. That'll have all the info. And then uh, same thing on social media. I don't do a lot of so I'm kind of at that age, <laughs> social media-wise, where it came out when I was already a lot older. So I, I have an Instagram and Facebook, but I don't I don't get on it that, that often. But, I mean, they can message me there. I look at it every day in the evening. I mean, I'll check it in the evening, but it's not one of those things. It's not like my kids growing up with it. They're into it, looking at it, you know, 40 times a day. No, I understand. We will link to those things in the show notes so people can find out about that. Um, you know, I, before I ask this last question, I did want to ask one more thing. What if somebody wants to be like a certified instructor? They want to take it all the way. They want to be the real deal. What's, what's that path real quick, or if it can be a quick, just kind of like, what do they do? How do they get started on that journey? It's funny you ask that because I'm picking up a guy from London Tomorrow at the airport, we have we're testing event here this weekend. I'm testing Saturday and Sunday, and uh, that's a great, wonderful thing. It's kind of like what we said before to to see like, hey, here's a baseline. Let's see if we do these tasks here. And of course, I mean, it's like 
you're getting on the stair and you got a whole flight of stairs above you, you know, but at least you're on the stair. Like you got a concept how it's working and what you can do with it. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, process. And I've, I've helped, you know, over the years, I've, I've mentored a lot of CIs and MCIs over the years. And I think that bronze, silver, gold that we talked about, we call that the, the casting skills challenge is what that's called on the FFI website. And that's also a gateway into that certified instructor path because then they, they get to the gold and they realize, see, the gold's not a far step from becoming a teacher. The only difference on the CI is now you're doing those same similar tasks. Well, I shouldn't say same. They're, they're pretty similar, though. Actually, really similar. But then they're asking you some teaching questions. So that means Rob Jason's been out there teaching some people, and now they ask him simple things like what causes a, a tailing loop? And you can give them a dissertation on what causes it because you understand what, what made that happen. So then you're bringing value. And that's what I think is good about this whole process, personally, Jason. The only way we raise the bar and evolve the sport worldwide is to have better and better teachers to lift that bar higher. In other words, and you get that by creating, think of it like creating an army of troops that's going out there preaching the same sermon then of how you get it to raise. Does that kind of help answer that a little bit? It does. More logistically, I'm wondering... Can you just do whatever you want up to and up to the day of the testing? I mean, is there a, a formal course that you have to take, or do you just have to show up with a certified, you know, somebody who can certify you and perform? Does that make sense? Or, or is there like, do you have to take a class and pass a test? I mentored last year twenty people for CI, and they already tested and 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 did it. Okay, so every year is different. This weekend, I know one of the people coming from Pennsylvania. The other four, I don't know a whole lot about. So I think they're doing it the way you just said it. Like they've been out looking at the requirements and they're practicing in the yard, but have they run through a pretest? I don't know. Have they run through like something to tell them where they are? I don't know. So okay. that's the part I wish that became mandatory. They at least went through a pretest to find out if they were ready or not. Cause I think yeah. it hurts the program when people come and they weren't ready. To get, the, to get the news on what they need to do to improve. I would rather have a successful test the first time than have to face the other. Okay. So there is no formal education process. You show up and if you do it, you do it. But there is you know, recommended paths of mentorship and lessons and things like that. Whatever you can do. That's, right. That's on their own accord. But there is a lot of valuable resources on the FFI website. There's a CI study guide that will help immensely. It just got revamped last summer. Okay. Um, it has a lot of content in it. And you can find that on the um, FFI website. And there's a lot of videos and things that go along with that. So if they're like really isolated in central Nebraska, and the reason I say Nebraska, a lot of the Midwest, there's not a certified instructor in a lot of those states like Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota. I don't think there's a single certified instructor in any one of those four. So let's say you were living out in the central Nebraska area. Where are you going to learn this from? That's why that, that information is on there, on the website, so that you have a resource. All right. Thank you. Last question. Yeah. You ready? Yep. If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more tactical and one more philosophical, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? Oh, that's a good one tactical um 
trying to think tactical with my biggest thing tactical wise would probably be understanding the, the, the necessity to rest things when you have success to, to look more and fish less, I would say would be my first advice there for tactical. Um, Cause that's what's paid off way bigger dividends and older age for me is in other words, like say we're floating down the South Holston, we're better than just throw back out and catch a little, 12 inch cookie cutter why not not fish at all until you see something 28 inches feeding and then go go catch that but if you don't stop to smell the roses in those examples and you're never seeing the 28 inch fish because you're so busy distracted from trying to get some little fish and of course i I think that changes too in everybody's age and whatever at first people want to just get a bunch of numbers you know so but i think there comes a point where they want to go after just quality fish and so i think you get that by looking more and fishing less. And the other one I think is about the concept as far as philosophy about how I would say this happened with a kid from uh, out of Georgia, went to Berry College where my wife's daddy is a college professor. And he said this, we were talking, I was talking one night at the guide school about the fact that it's all connected, all water's connected, you know, from the little tiny spring in Appalachia, you're connected to, to Wanaka, New Zealand, because the hydrogen molecule which h2o every hydrogen molecule is connected to the other hydrogen molecule so all water throughout the world is already connected so i would say that's my philosophical thing like when you touch water in a river or a stream and it moves past you it's kind of like that moment's gone that water will never (laughs) you'll never see that part again so it's kind of like life you know philosophy of thinking that that things you learn along the way that's what makes it such a sweet journey overall to, to a lot of people i think is just the appreciation on a deeper layer into the onion of of how much sweeter it is of stuff that you thought you knew 10 20 30 years ago you, you can see it a little more clearly i think the older you get i think that's wise words i appreciate you sharing it mac thank you for that and thank you for being a teacher here today on the show all the information you shared and uh, we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. So people have those resources and uh, have some of the good information that 20% we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show and I wish you well. Hey, I appreciate you having me, Jason. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Wade out there fly fishing podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There.